Welcome to the Dubai College Wellbeing Podcast. We are your hosts, the school counselors here at DC. This podcast is all about mental health. I am Sandra Gorman. I am Michelle Estacanchi. And I am Alison Kate. Welcome, everybody. Today, we are joined by Professor Mary Perskadon. Professor Mary is one of the most prominent American researchers in sleep. She is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at the Warren Alpert Medical School of Brown University. She is also the director of the Sleep and Chronobiology Research Lab at E.P. Bradley Hospital. She is considered to be an expert on sleep and circadian rhythms during childhood, adolescence and young adulthood. She researches issues related to daytime sleepiness. She has also contributed important research on school start times as it relates to sleep patterns and sleepiness in adolescents. Professor Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Is there anything you'd like to add to that introduction? I think I'll stop there. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. Okay. So we'll get started. And the first question is, um, is how do we define sleep? I think we use the word sleep um, just without thinking about it. Um, oh, every day or every night we go to sleep. But actually, what is the, the definition of sleep? It's interesting. When I think about defining sleep, I think more than just you and I and other humans or even other mammals and think of how do you know if any organism take the cockroach on the floor or whatever is, has or doesn't have sleep. And so there are some we call behavioral criteria to define sleep. So one, it's a a state of inactivity, of stillness, lack of movement. It's a state of unreactivity or reduced reactivity to the environment, to signals in the environment. It's a state that is regulated. So when you take it away, it comes back stronger. It's a state that occurs in a pattern. Usually it's a daily pattern. So an organism or a species may do their sleeping or inactivity at night and be active in the day, kind of like what we do or we should be doing. <laughs> and there are others that are active you know, at night and sleep during the, the light period. So when we get all of those things together, and I have dear friends and colleagues who study animals like cockroaches or scorpions, they test these things and look at the animals and see the sleep they can define. So in humans, we have other ways of approaching things. And uh, I can talk a little bit about that now if you'd like. Yes, please. So think most of the listeners are going to be familiar with wearables that say they can measure your sleep. And commercial wearables give a pretty good idea of sleep. They're not quite as good as they think they are necessarily. We use research grade wearables that give us a measure of activity, basically, and inactivity. It's kind of like how a lot of early work in other species for example, hamsters. Lots of people have, I don't know if you have hamsters mm-hmm. down here yes. with the running wheel. Yeah. yeah, and that's activity. And hamsters are nocturnal animals. So, yeah, if they have a squeaky wheel and you're trying to sleep and they're up and about, uh, it can be a little challenging. 
So that's kind of similar to what the wearables do. They tell us when we're active and when we're inactive. So, and we infer from that sleep. Um, so that's one way to get at sleep in humans. There's another way that we use in the laboratory. It's called polysomnography. It's a big word. You take it apart into three parts and don't worry about the derivations because there's a little Greek and Latin mixed in there, but it means many sleep writings. And so we record measures from brain waves. So we put electrodes on the scalp from eye movements, electrodes beside the eyes, and from muscle activity, and that's usually electrodes on or under the chin. And those three measures really help us say, for sure, is it sleep? And if it is, what kind of sleep is it? What state of sleep is it? So that's, we use that a lot in my research work. So um, you've spoken a few things there about the, the wearables that you would use in a, in a, a research lab. Um, if somebody wanted to measure their sleep at home, would, those, would it be accurate to wear a wearable on their arm? How do you feel about, because, you know, we have apps on our phones and um, Fitbits and all of these things. Do you feel that those are accurate? What are they really measuring? Yeah, they're kind of reasonable. The reason we haven't used them in my research, uh, the commercial variables or wearables, is they are they're not quite as accurate and we can't access the data and the companies make their own algorithms for deciding is it sleep or is it not sleep. And we've seen I'm not a clinician, but I've my colleagues who are sometimes worry that the feedback that their patients are getting from the wearables is actually inaccurate and disturbing to the patient. You know, it may say, you know, the person sleeps what they think is a good night's sleep, and then they look at their wearable app and they say, oh my goodness, my wearable says I had a terrible night's sleep. Or sometimes it's the opposite. So I had a terrible night's sleep. My wearable says, oh, you slept for nine hours, or whatever. And I think that's the kind of thing we worry about, um, you know, with people getting misled a little bit. And it, and it can be disturbing. Mm. Absolutely. What you do with that information can be... Um, you know, either positive or negative in your life, um, either you're missing something or you're over-worrying about something that actually isn't a concern. But I think it's, uh, it is helpful for some people. Okay. If they've got one that works well with them and it's showing them, you know, you can do better mm -hmm. <laughs> or, you know, and I think, mm -hmm. I think there are some instances where it is helpful as well. Yes, okay. So what are the biological factors that regulate our sleep behavior? Oh, this is fun. <laughs> it's fun for me. Yeah. I, I really enjoy it too. I'm I work sure. this every day. So we think of two things, two factors. So one of them, I'll call it the sleep pressure factor. Technically, it's sleep homeostasis. But that's the what rules a lot of our sleep. So the longer you stay awake, the more sleep pressure you build up. So you can think about it. It's kind of like scales. And then when you sleep, the pressure goes down. So that, you know, if you stay up 18 hours, you're going to fall asleep easier. You're going to be, you know, high sleep pressure. Uh, and if you're a truck driver, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> and then the other one is our circadian rhythm, our daily rhythm. So there's a built-in biology. There's a clock in our brain 
that sets the phase on a daily basis. And so that's kind of internal. It doesn't matter how long you stay awake. It's there riding along the background. And when you're doing everything correctly, these two processes help regulate sleep in a perfect way. So they're kind of in opposition. So remember I said your sleep pressure grows as you stay awake. Well, our circadian rhythms, if we're in synchrony with them, have a, a piece called the clock-dependent alerting that happens late in our day, in our afternoon. So you're building up sleep pressure, sleep pressure, sleep pressure, and you'd think, oh my goodness, you must be very sleepy. But this clock-dependent alerting kicks in and helps you stay awake a little later, and then everything comes down, and then you can fall asleep and sleep all night long until you've expended that sleep pressure and the clock starts waking you up as well. So it's really a nice way that, uh, we'll call her Mother Nature, uh, put the system together mm -hmm. to help us be our best. Mm -hmm. Okay. So when you mentioned that alert, is that to sort of say, hey, it's not really time to go sleep yet. Let's stay a little bit longer. Yeah. So it helps buffer the uh, sleep pressure later in the day. It's what lets us naturally and, and easily stay awake for a full 16-hour day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And is that sort of what we're, we're trying to aim for? Is it the 16-hour day? Well, grown-ups. Okay. Uh, mm -hmm. Like the us, is, that's a good estimate. Yeah. For but when we talk about younger people, children and adolescents, then we want to think a little bit longer for the nighttime. Yes. Okay. So our body and mother nature is trying to give us all these signals. However, I guess our lifestyles are, are oh, pulling us out of that. Yeah. Or like you mentioned, the truck drivers or people on shift work mm. or people, you know. For example, exams coming up later, it's not, not going at the same time. So our lifestyle is probably going against this it's biology. Huge. It's huge. Mm -hmm. uh, it's an important factor. If you think about it, the systems that we talk about, the biology, that's kind of well, not necessarily hardwired, but it's built in. And if you go back uh, several millennia, <laughs> mm -hmm. and when the human... Uh, Humanity was living in uh, different circumstances without electricity and go back far enough without access to fire necessarily. You know, we lived by day, light, and darkness. We lived by the natural environment. And now we live by artificial light more than not. So what that led to is us staying awake longer in our days, by and large. You know, in the summertime, when we're uh, in the Northern Hemisphere, our days are longer. Uh, the daylight, natural daylight is longer. But, you know, it just really, it's really changed things. One of the most interesting measure that's been developed uh, is a measure that was invented by Till Rohnberg, who's a, a sleep circadian rhythms scientist in um, Munich. But he developed a measure that he calls, he calls a chronotype, and it's the middle of your nighttime on days when you don't have anything, you know, planning your days. Like you don't have to go to school, you don't have to go to work. So generally for most of us, that's weekends. 
And what's interesting is he shows this beautiful change across adolescent development that that gets later and later and later and later in the second decade. And then you hit the you know, early 20s and it starts getting earlier. That said, at any age in industrialized societies, that midpoint of sleep on free days is between about 2.30 and for the older adolescents, 5.30 a.m. So if you think about the natural environment, you know, think about the word midnight. <laughs> midnight is the middle of the nighttime. Except when we're on summertime or daylight saving time that we've changed that midpoint as well. But we're so far away, and that's mostly electrical light that's pushed us later. Um, we're so far away from having the middle of our sleep be the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. Wow. So, Professor Mary, you've touched a little bit there on adolescence. Of course, we um, are a high school, secondary school, and um, often when we check in with our students about their sleep, we notice that um, there's not a lot of it. And mainly what you're saying is that they tend to go to bed or go to sleep. They get into bed maybe around 11ish. They're falling asleep around midnight, if not later, and then having to get up in the mornings. What do you think? Um, is that them just being... You know, for some for some parents, it might just feel, you know, come on, you've just got to be more disciplined. What's happening with our adolescents? Yeah, well, this is uh, one of the themes of my research has been, and we go back to those two processes that regulate sleep. So one of the first things we found as we were looking at this more carefully is that as kids go into and through puberty, their phase of their internal clock gets later. So they have no control over that. That's just a natural developmental phenomenon. And, and so that's kind of pushing behaviors later. We also found when we looked at the sleep pressure system that compared to say an eight-year-old, a 12-year-old has a slower buildup of sleep pressure across the day. And we interpret that as, well, they can stay awake a little longer than their younger selves because the pressure is building up slower. I mean, if you look at a, you know, five, six, seven-year-old who's late at night, you know, it's like there's holidays or something, and they're just going like mad for hours after hours, and then they don't want to go to bed because older brothers and sisters are still awake. But if they're sitting down in the family room, maybe in front of the TV, and you go in five minutes later, they're dead asleep because mm -hmm. uh, that sleep pressure has built up so fast and they're at a different time in their biological clock. So it really, unless they're, you know, active and moving around, they're really going to struggle to stay awake. So in your teens, early teens, uh, you see that, and a lot of times parents will say, it's like a switch was flipped. And now my child, who was so easy to go to bed, woke up with, you know, joy on their lips, uh, you know, and then they now are just struggling to sleep at, at bedtime and to get up in the morning. So that's a very common thing. And then you add all the other things that are going on, psychosocial things going on with adolescents, including all their uh, exposure to electronic media, including their sort of internal 
need for autonomy. And I think one of the first places that manifests in kids is bedtime, you know, uh, and it's one of the bribes parents use. <laughs> if you eat your broccoli, you can stay up a little <laughs> later, uh, which I don't really agree with that <laughs> as, a, as a good way to, to manage sleep, maybe to manage feeding, but <clears throat> anyway, so, but in the, you know, in all of the emotional upsets and emotional regulation of, you know, new loves or loves lost or, you know, just the, the athletic, they've lost sports here, yeah. losing your games or losing the championship, all of those things seem to have much more of a urgency and an arousing effect in teens. And part of that has to do with the way their brains are starting to wire up or haven't quite yet wired up um, that uh, one of my colleagues describes it as, you know, the developmental state in the brain is really acting first in the amygdala, which is, that's the charge ahead uh, part of your brain, and last in the frontal regions, which is the, it's like, you're your full on in your accelerator, but your brake hasn't yet quite kicked in. And so, you know, I think that combines with these bi other biological factors to just make it really hard for teens to manage sleep the way we might prefer. So do you feel, um, if I can ask, um, do you feel it's so important for them? I know that sounds strange, but you know, because of all these things that seem so more, so much more important um, in their world, um, the social media, the friendships, the sports, the studying, all of that kind of thing, is it still important for them to be getting sleep and how much is enough for them? It's incredibly important for them to still be getting sleep. And every one of those things you mentioned is improved with adequate sleep. So speaking of sports, you know, if your sleep isn't adequate, the, the simplest way or piece of information to look at is reaction time. So reaction time slows significantly. And so anybody who's playing a sport with a ball, pretty much, you know, those sports are totally reaction time. I was just at the Australian Open and we look at how fast the ball is moving around. It's like they really need to have the fastest reaction times. But even, you know, football or basketball, all those sports, you really need to be keen. So, and that's a good message, I think, for the coaching staff to hear. But also, and again, affects sports, but also learning is if you haven't had adequate sleep, you're not cognitively with it. Your brain is sort of, you may not even sense that it's a fog, but you're not able to take in information quite as well as when you have adequate sleep. Not only that, in terms of learning, and teens, it's hard to convince them that's their job but because uh, <laughs> of all these other things, but your brain is consolidating overnight during your sleep what you've learned in the daytime. So the students who understand that and manage their sleep better they can have like a 15% edge on other students with their learning during, you know, from what they've learned in the daytime. So, and then there's beauty sleep. So there's a little bit of research that if you're sleeping adequately, you look better. So, um, 
that's that one the teens kind of like. Mm -hmm. But you know, it also helps with relationships. All the things that you know, emotion regulation is important for. Adequate sleep is important for. So you ask how much sleep, <laughs> and that's a that's you know everybody is different, but not everybody is a short sleeper. <laughs> I mean, they try and convince you they are, but it's not the same. So in the early adolescence, well, throughout adolescence, I think if the kids are in bed trying to sleep. And they will sleep if they're trying for eight and a half to nine hours. That's probably plenty of sleep. Optimal, and there's research to to confirm this. Optimal for adolescents is closer to nine hours and fifteen minutes. But convincing them that's doable, optimal and doable are I think, two different sides of the coin. <laughs> yeah. I just wondered if I could ask you about. Um if it's like about nine hours, is there a, is there a optimal time to sleep? You know, so it doesn't matter if they get their nine hours from midnight to nine in the morning or, you know, 10 to seven. Yeah, you asked a good question. When I was younger, uh, there used to be these things that sleep before midnight is the best sleep of all. And that was not really true, but I think that was a way to convince uh, me and my adolescents to go to bed earlier. Uh, I mean, we need all of sleep. And when we're not, and especially for teens, when they're not getting enough sleep, what they're cutting off is REM sleep. So that's important for certain kinds of learning. It's important for motion regulation uh, in particular. And so, and it also makes them miserable and hard to stay awake, especially in their first period classes during the daytime. So, and teachers notice that, I think, uh, a lot. <laughs> when they have to sing and dance and whistle, they keep the students awake in the morning. So, um, when to sleep? There's no, you know, our, we go back to the two processes. And so the rhythms, if you're sleeping the same every day, if you're light, and dark are the same every day. And what gives us our dark signal these days now is closing our eyes, you know, turning out our lights. And so if you do that and then you're synchronized, then you want to go to sleep at the time your brain is giving you the signal that it's nighttime. And so I can't give you, you know, a number for that. There are ways that teens could manage their internal clocks by when they get their light and dark. Um, and, and that can help. Uh, and I think a lot of things that can be done are really hard to do because it's family and child sort of doing, being willing to work together to do it. And in some cases, it just takes so much energy from the whole family to manage that. Although the whole situation does sometimes take a lot of energy. But I think the more important than what time is to do it routinely, to have a routine. And I think what happens in a lot of teens is what um, is called social jet lag. So their brain time is later, but we, I'm not a 
official in a school, so it's not me setting the school start time. So they have to get up earlier than their brain clock is set for, their internal clock. And so on the weekends, they go where their brain wants them to go. And adding to that is catch-up sleep or recovery sleep because they haven't had enough sleep during the school week. So, you know, it's like every week they're going three or four time zones earlier and then come back to their natural clock time. So it, that and that really messes up all your rhythms. And they're no longer synchronized and helping you to be at your best. So it's, it's a challenge. And so if you're not synchronized and you're not getting enough sleep, you've got that double whammy that, that makes it hard to, to manage life. Absolutely. Uh, and linked to that, you've been able to bring your amazing research to the authorities. You're trying to get this information across. How, how is that going and, and your suggestions on school timings yeah. and that? It's been a long hike, uh, really. In 1993, the insight about this first kicked in based on some of our research, which has, you know, been even more important at driving the issue. Um, and I was giving a talk in Minnesota, and my colleague who's listening to me and has had teenage kids, he's there, they have to get up so early, we have to do something. So he went to his state medical association and put a proposition in front of them about school start time. And they did a little hand-waving around it. And then an investigator there who was in the Department of Education got involved and started really probing what's going on in the schools. And there's been this kind of push, but in the United States, every town has an independent school board or school committee that regulates these things. And so it's really, there's no top-down regulation. I did, I visited Israel shortly after, you know, we made the connection where it was more top-down school uh, timing thing. They had what they called zero hour, 7 a.m., uh, <laughs> which is way too early for most teens. But at any rate, they, you know, in a year, made the change for the students in Israel. And so it's been kind of a slow-growing snowball, <laughs> if you will. And some in individual school districts have made the change and really find the teachers love it because they're not having to do all that song and dance in the morning. Um, the custodians and the schools like it because kids are more obedient and behave well and they're not having to come in with, you know, three or four cups of Starbucks and leave mm -hmm. their debris around. And the coaches, once they kind of understand it and see how much better this, the their students are doing with understanding what they're supposed to be doing, you know, learning, mm -hmm. it all comes back to learning again learning the plays and learning their positions and what they need to be doing and being better at it because their reaction times have improved, you know, and, and the kids also, I think, ultimately feel the difference. It's harder to convince them, I think, sometimes because they still want to be doing what they want to be doing. But um, 
it's, it makes an impact in the school districts. Uh, so, a, I don't know, it's been a while now, the American um, Academy of Pediatrics put out a policy statement that schools for, for middle school, so that's grade six to eight or so, and high, and high school, upper school, uh, should not start before 8.30 a.m. And so the year before COVID was, gave us that whammy, um, the state of California, which is one of the largest, most populous states in, in the U.S., the governor signed a bill that a lot of people have been lobbying for to implement that in the schools in California. And then COVID came and, of course, nothing <laughs> happened. But now, you know, they're getting back to trying to implement that policy. So it's a slow process, but it's now being recognized as a real public health concern. It's interesting because here, I, many of our schools start quite early. Um, and so a lot of our kids will have naps in the afternoon or they'll bring in the Starbucks or they don't bring it in, to the, but they'll have their coffee or caffeine in the mornings or in the afternoons. And you, you know, what do you have to say about that? What would you? Well, that brings us back again to that sleep pressure system. So I always advise students not to nap after school because that boils down the sleep pressure. It's like the relief valve on your pressure cooker. And then it's harder to build up the pressure that helps you fall asleep. So there's that, and then the caffeine, I don't drink caffeine after school because part of the sleep pressure system is regulated by adenosine neurons in, your, in the front part of your brain. And caffeine, primary uh, yeah, output, is to block adenosine receptors. And so you're blocking that sleep system chemically. Uh, not only that, more recent data has shown when you take caffeine late in the day, you're also pushing your rhythms even later. So, again, it's a, you're hitting both of those processes at the wrong time with the wrong message, and then it's, they can't fall asleep. That said, if they're not getting enough sleep all every day during the week, it really is challenging to stay awake and do homework, for example, after school. So, you know, there has to be some balance where more sleep is acquired during the week. And that's where the school start time can help a lot. If they're getting their seven and a half, eight hours, which isn't, it's not optimal, but it's better than six or five, mm -hmm. then, you know, they can sustain that. And, and the more they do that on a daily basis, the easier it will be for them to fall asleep at a better time in the evening and to get all their homework done. You know, if, if you're so tired that you have to read that paragraph five times to get through it, when you may or may not absorb the information, that's inefficient learning. And so it takes longer and it's just throwing away time to no good use. If they're not doing homework and they're chatting with their friends, well, that's a little... <laughs> 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 yeah, no, that's interesting. I really love my Friday afternoon nap. It's my one nap of the day of the week. But I like what you say about, yeah, it does make sense about the, the sleep pressure and, you know, just getting a better night's sleep just makes everything better, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 Um, 
and then I think we covered the consequences of poor sleep and and just the importance. Oh of well, I didn't hit all of the consequences. Would you speak more? I mean, mean there are yeah, tons. I mean, yeah, there's wonderful data showing poor sleep in adolescents, and specifically leads to um, more risk-taking behaviors. Mm -hmm. And again, it comes back to sort of pushing on that accelerator if you don't have enough sleep without the braking system set up to help you. And so uh, with under, I think it's under six hours of sleep, there's increase in risk-taking like smoking or drinking or riding your whatever bicycle or motorcycle without your helmet or, you know, all of these things, as well as suicide and self-harm. That was actually the biggest uh, effect that was seen. Uh, and so that's huge. I mean, those are things that you can, that can kill you, basically. You know, oh, well, I'm not learning well, but, but if I'm going out for a drive, with my three other friends and none of us have had enough sleep and then we just want to go as fast as we can. Next thing you know, you have four dead teens. And that's that's scary and that's a real world outcome that people know about. Uh, and then, you know, there is all the emotion regulation um, problems and challenges. But there's also weight gain that comes from not getting enough sleep. Um, and it affects your immune function as well, so sicker more often. Um, and not just your sort of immunity that's here for your viruses or, your, you know, the colds or whatever. But also, if you haven't had enough sleep the night before you get your vaccination, it won't take as well. So I always find my vaccinations for a day that's after I know I'm going to get a good night's sleep the night before, because then, you know, I'm protected better. So interesting. We just, um, I feel really privileged. I think we all feel very privileged to have had you here today and to share your knowledge and for you to take that time to come into Dubai College and, and be with us. I feel really, really thankful that you've done that. Well, it's a pleasure for me. You may get the idea that I love talking about this kind of thing. And so you gave me a wonderful opportunity to do a little teaching and to, you know, tell you more about what sleep is and how it works. Oh, it's amazing. And I think for anybody who's listening, it's such, you know, such a, a wonderful and um, bit of information that you get to share with us. And also probably things that we might think, but now we know we have the research behind it and to help us communicate that with our teens is, um, you know, they always like to know this isn't just mom or dad saying it, but there's research behind it. So thank you. And I think for anybody who's listening, uh, you have a website, sleepforscience.org. Yes. And they can find more information on that website. Yeah. So it's sleepforscience, F-O-R, not the number, dot org. Thank you, thank you so, so much. much. Thank you. It was fun. Thank you to you, our listeners, for taking time out of your day to join in our discussion about mental health. If you want to hear more, please stay tuned for our next Dubai College Wellbeing Podcast. And if no one has told you today, know that you are enough.